Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Grocery Shop Trade Show in Las Vegas on Tuesday, September 17th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us today, so I am solo, but I am making up for it by bringing you a great guest. Um, welcome to today's show, Doug Strayton. He's the Chief Digital Officer at the Hershey Company. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Doug, I know there's probably no listeners that are not familiar with Hershey, uh, but I sometimes think you're a, a broader company than people realize. Can you give us the, the elevator pitch for Hershey? Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, this year is our 125th birthday. Um, and, um, you know, that's uh, iconic, I think, for a number of reasons. It, it, it's, it's both iconic in the fact that you've got a, a brand that means so much to people. Um, that's been around for this long and widely recognized as both being still hip and cool, yet by still being, you know, um, you know, kind of a legacy brand. I feel like you've surpassed the fad stage. Yeah, yeah. So retro is cool again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, so, you know, Hershey's doing its, doing its part. Um, so the, I think the, uh, the other th- the couple of things about Hershey that I think are really, really amazing. So the first thing is, you know, Milton Hershey bequeathed his entire fortune to the Milton Hershey Trust and the Milton Hershey Trust. Um, funds, um, the entire education, housing, uh, room, all room and board, frankly, for uh, disadvantaged kids. So originally it was uh, orphan boys, and it's now been expanded to uh, disadvantaged uh, boys and girls. Um, it's an amazing school located in Hershey, Pennsylvania, 4,000 students. Um, and the Milton Hershey Trust is our biggest shareholder. So uh, in fact, um, we all work for a greater good beyond just selling candy and uh, making a profit where, you know, actually that money goes to a very, very good cause, uh, which I think is amazing. And in terms of being broader, um, you know, we have sister companies, Hershey Entertainment Resorts. So we have a hotel, we have an amusement park, we have retail experiences. Um, in addition, we've been expanding into uh, adjacent cat- snacking categories. Um, so we've added uh, brands like Skinny Pop, um, Pirate's Booty, Crave, uh, bark thins and a number of others. So uh, beyond just our core chocolate, we're we're expanding into uh, areas where we think we have the ability to win. It's very cool, and it's it's funny because uh, I feel like these uh, purpose based companies have become super trendy now, and everyone's like, "Oh, millennials will only buy from these purpose based companies." Uh, it's it's clearly not a new thing. You guys have been doing it for 125 years. Yeah, I, we we have been doing it, and it, it is interesting because uh, it's it's um it's both fun. Um, and maybe a little bit hilarious um, to watch companies try to evolve a purpose when they've never been purpose driven. <laughs> and um, it's interesting to see who becomes who seems authentic in terms of their purpose and and who doesn't. Um, and I don't think I think there's no question um, it once you review the story of Milton Hershey, um, how iconic and how amazing and how purpose driven he was as an individual and how that uh, manifests itself in what we do every single day. So, yeah, it's 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 very cool. Yeah. Yeah. If it's if it's not authentic, it's a pretty amazing ruse. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> it's the exactly long, right. long con. Yeah, um, and, and <laughs> we don't we don't have to name any names, but it is funny because there are even other big confectionaries that have like yes. recently tried to embrace. Yes, uh, but a, a but, that, but none of them have built a school. No, it's tough that it's I tough know of yet to bolt that on at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, and then Doug, uh, 
you have a cool job today, but this is not your first digital rodeo. The listeners are always really interested to know how you came to this position. Can you share a little bit about your? Um, yeah, I, you know, I've been. Uh, part of it was decisions I made. Part of it was timing, um, and um, you know, not all the decisioning was based on uh, I would say fully formed facts. Some of it was was you know instinctual, but. Um, in essence, I started uh, I started uh, my career in beauty, and uh, with some of the big beauty players, and then moved into luxury, um, specifically luxury watches, and then took a flyer in my early thirties to go to a startup and help build and run a startup, which we then sold to Unilever. And it was it was actually that experience which was most fundamental to the way I actually approached digital. Um, so it was a very agile organization. Um, you know, look at the data very quickly. Don't overly obsess on getting that data perfect. But take a look at directionally what's going on, make a decision, and move very quickly. Um, and so I brought that um, style along with kind of the, the bigger company professional chops and that lingo um, to Unilever when I was acquired, uh, when the business was acquired. And, um, and then uh, essentially picked a, a couple, uh, couple consult, internal consulting jobs that were interesting to me. And digital had always been interesting to me. Um, and technology in general, I was kind of a coder geek when I was in, in high school and college, and I used to take those types of classes for um, you know easy credits. And um, so what I've been able to do in the last seven years is kind of reinvent my career um, beyond the traditional CPG and into a really interesting space and be successful at it. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. I'd like to say it was all thought out, but it uh, some often of it was, it, and some of it wasn't. Often uh, <laughs> it looks it looks best in hindsight, which is totally fine. And uh, some of these times, like we wouldn't take these gigs if we knew all the facts. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so sometimes ignorance is a good thing. Uh, but I do feel like my sense from the outside is that uh, you were really at Unilever while they were sort of inventing a digital COE, which is sort of cool. Like you didn't yeah. necessarily inherit a playbook from the last last digital guy there there was none exactly um and so um it was very much like uh well the way i looked at it um my wife asked me if i was nervous about it and i said well the good news is there's nothing really to compare it to so you know sky you know sky's the limit and i think the one thing that was already obvious it was already growing it was a very small business but it was already, already growing double digits and the reason i felt confident about at least taking the business component um of of digital is that um, I actually haven't been in a business that's, that's grown less than double digits um, for like 22 years. So the, business, the volatility and the high speed of the business and the high growth rate really didn't bother me. Um, and, making, and feeling comfortable about um, the ability to turn that growth rate into a, a scalable and profitable model within the, the, the broader CPG space didn't worry me where it would, probably would have worried other people. Um, but I just kind of felt that um, why wouldn't why couldn't it be me that 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 would do this as opposed to somebody else? And I think it was a really wise choice. I think uh, the, mo- the the career track at a Unilever was very much like go work and run and be the general manager of one of the big categories. And I was taking a bet that actually my job would be more important than some of those jobs. Um, and I I felt that you know when I left that that position and joined the Hershey Company. Um, that it was actually the best job in the building, and uh, more people probably wanted to get into my my job that was initially shunned than um, than uh, into the, the traditional roles. So that's, that's interesting. And in the yeah. traditional roles, you probably would have had to like relocate to Brazil and also learn like Dutch <laughs> or something in order to, to keep pro- progressing. Yeah, yeah that's possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that is interesting though is I Unilever is pretty cool because of the portfolio brands. So yeah, you've got fantastic. Some, like 
pretty digitally advanced brands. You've got some, you know, incumbents that are probably yep. right to digital with a lot of opportunity. Yep. You bought at least one very well-known digitally native brand. Yeah, Dollar Shave uh, Club. Dollar yep. Shave Club, exactly. Um, and then uh, you also owned some direct-to-consumer brands like Ben & Jerry's and others that owned a bunch of stores and stuff. So you had yeah. somewhat like my consulting role, like you had some of everything yeah. in the portfolio. So then you moved to Hershey, and uh, you know Hershey's like mostly in the grocery space, which is correct. Like, uh, very brutal margins. Like we're just starting to get penetrated by digital, like low average sales prices. Yeah. And then most of your stuff melts when you ship it. Yeah. So it seems like you you took the level of difficulty from Unilever and maybe even ratcheted it up a notch coming to Hershey. Yeah, Unilever has a beautiful portfolio. Um, uh, you know, nothing but good came out of, you know, getting that experience with Unilever. The the beauty and of it was... Some, some of the categories migrated online before other categories. And so you had this, this ability to kind of learn in and, um, and food was the last to go. But the interesting thing, I think like most people would have thought like, why would you join a company where your, your, your core portfolio is something that's going to melt in the summer? And how is that going to get delivered through e-commerce? Um, but you know, what we had already known is, you know, Unilever is a big global company with a lot of insights from the grocery models over in, in Europe and the UK. And we knew how they were solving for those problems. Um, and in fact, something like an ice cream, which melts, yep. um, over indexes. Not, not in my bullet does not, but it, okay. it does not. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it over indexes online. And it, that was like a big, uh, you know, like a, you know, the clouds were opening up and uh, the God beams came down and were shining on people. They couldn't believe that uh, in e-commerce of all places that things would over-index. But there's a component of, you know, hey, it's going to be delivered. Um, it's going to be um, protected in some way, shape, or form, or it's going to be click and collect, and it's going to be staged in a way that the product integrity is going to be maintained. And as it turns out, people are maybe more comfortable with uh, buying ice cream that way. And I was, I, was, I was kind of hedging the bet that in confection, yeah, we would have to solve for certain models, within e-commerce, a ship-to-home model. But in some of the other models, it, there was actually the way that they were being addressed that the, uh, the meltability would not be an issue. Um, and then in terms of, you know, average selling prices and whatnot, that's just a matter of, you know, playing your portfolio the right way across the different e-commerce models as opposed to just one portfolio for e-commerce broadly. Um, and once you do, do some of that work, you can, uh, you know, you can make the economics work both for you, the customer, and the consumer. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about Hershey's digital footprint. I would assume yeah. the bulk of it is not uh, put cases of chocolate in cool packs and ship them to a consumer's home. The, the majority is like digitally influenced sales, these curbside pickup, like all, all of the sort of new digital experience that, that retailers are, are now like enjoying some success with that, that require fuel from you. Yeah, well, um, the, the interesting thing is... Um, you know, we do just and well in kind of like those digitally native e-commerce channels, the pure play channels, um, as you would expect we would do in the offline and in, in, in some of the core parts of the uh, the portfolio, which um, took a lot of work. And I wasn't so sure that that, that could be done. You know, I thought there would be some, some other level of uh, success we would get there. But as it turns out, there are ways to uh, to make that happen. So that was that was actually a pleasant surprise. And, and it was from working the strategy and doing the foundational work really, really well. Um, the flip is um, um, the the models beyond ship to home is generally what, what my experience has been, both from understanding what happened over in Europe 
and then early reads from some of my retail partners from my experience over the last six, seven years is that online shoppers overall over index. And so what I was, and, and, you know, so what I was hoping is that, uh, in fact, we would over index online. But the worry was is what component of that basket, for example, in physical grocery was impulse. And um, as that method or that, that kind of uh, thinking around impulse categories goes away, will the, will the bigger online basket translate? And as it turns out, it did, um, and it, but for unexpected ways. And so what we did is we just took a look at what, what are the digital insights driving the behaviors, and we doubled down on those instead of taking a look at what, happened, uh, what, what works in physical and trying to do an analogy online. Um, I think that's maybe the fallacy of, of, of a lot of the categories in the physical space is they think, I'll use the insights over here in some sort of analogy of an end cap, and that's going to solve my, my, uh, my issues online, and that's not the case. It's fundamentally different behaviors, and if you can figure out what's driving those, then you should be able to you know, basically replicate your business successfully online. That is uh, super interesting because that, that comes up a lot, right? Like, so the curbside pickup in particular, yeah. um, there's a double-edged sword here, right? Like there's, <clears throat> there's no uh, impulse cash wrap. Um, and so like a lot of these unplanned purchases are harder to do. Yeah. Uh, once a, a consumer builds a list, they tend to repeat that list or manicure that list. So it's tougher to get yeah. on or off that list. Um, but then the flip side, for your point, like I've talked to a bunch of brands, the buying behavior is very different. And I somewhat speculate that there's a slightly different mission. Um, but for example, I've talked to ice cream companies and they're like, yeah, we sell a lot of quarts in the store. We sell yeah. a lot of gallons. Yeah. curbside, um, which is funny to me because I'm assuming part of that is that customers don't want to push the gallon of ice cream around the store and have their, their neighbors see their ice cream consumption habits. Yeah, or those pints are being consumed in the car before they get home. Exactly. One of the yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, one of each. One, one to go and one for show. Exactly. Um, and so what, what I'm uh, inferring from your answer is you're sort of leaning into those, those changes in consumer behavior and not necessarily trying to recreate analog impulse yeah. In the so the space. interesting, you actually brought up a really interesting thing. So pints versus say gallons or half gallons. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, what we're working on is yes, get on the list, but the pack that we get on that list might look very different from the pack and impulse. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's an adage in the, in, in Hershey, which is see candy, uh, buy candy, eat candy. Um, and then, you know, then it repeats, but they think about it within the context of an impulse sale. Like you're in checkout and you see it, you buy it, and then you eat it right away. And, um, the, the bet that we've been trying to kind of, or not the bet, I would say, but what we've been trying to figure out and maximize is, well, if I can get, um, candy into a pantry more often because it's being, it's being curated off of a list where they're going to see the candy and eat the candy is at home. Yep. And it's, a, it's an expandable uh, category. People just eat it because yep. um, it's there. Um, and then if it's on their list, it's just going to come again. So is there a magic that we can, we can exploit in terms of that behavior that fully mitigates and maybe even improves upon um, what we would have gotten from an impulse perspective? We're, I mean, so far, I think the strategy of looking at things that way is working. I, I think it, it can, we can continue to refine it, uh, and we'll only be able to really truly refine it, I think, as um, the retailers continue to improve their overall capabilities because, obviously, we don't necessarily 
own the technology stacks that can help us drive that. Sure. And it, it, uh, we may talk about this later, but it still feels like sort of the first inning of of all it, of these yeah, experiences. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's funny, one of the like traditional shopper marketing that you talk a lot about like the second purchase that like, you know, really you haven't won until that consumer yeah. rebuys your product from the shelf. And, you know, a, a hypothesis with these uh, digital lists is that first purchase becomes much more important. And so it's almost like it fundamentally changes your customer acquisition strategy and where you'd invest your dollars because yeah. con- conquesting that first purchase and getting on that first list is, like it has so much more value attached to it than it did in the yeah in the traditional model um but let's uh uh, move forward a little bit like what are some of the digital tactics that you guys use at hershey that have been successful do you have any sort of specific examples you can share i would love to give you some bright and shiny amazing miracle cure for being successful in e-commerce but frankly with blockchain and virtual reality (laughs) possible (laughs) yeah yeah you can throw ar in there too um so the 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 real trick is, and it's going to sound you know rudimentary, right? Is is you have to have a clear strategy. You have to understand exactly what you're what you want to do, what you're going to expect to get out of that, and then you make need to make choices and priorities within that framework that you design um, and that overall vision that you're you're trying to enable, and then you just make choices. Really, it comes down to just like anything, it comes down to fundamentals most of the time. So. You know, people say, well, you know, you're going to need this technology platform and that technology platform. You're going to need this. And to a certain extent, it's true. You need a baseline of of technologies. Um, But what you do with those technologies and how you, you know, the inputs that you provide to those technologies to get the right outputs is actually the critical piece. So it comes down to having really crisp insights and then designing um, assets or whatever it might be for the experience that you're trying to drive and therefore the sale that you're trying to uh, create um, in a way that's, you know, really, really effective and efficient. And if you can figure out and systematize that, um, you know, that will probably do more for any part of your business, frankly, not just digital, but it certainly will do more for your digital business than any one technology will do. Now, technology is still important and you need to keep an eye on what's new, what's fresh and and, you know, are the behaviors changing? Um, and so that does mean you have to, you know, from time to time, look at your stack, upgrade. Um, but in a lot of cases, it really comes down to is how well can you get your company to execute against broader digital? And not just think of it as a downstream activity, but think of it as a full value chain activity from the, the start of innovation all the way through to go to market. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because, I, I mean, uh, it would be way more fun if you just, like, made a list of sexy baubles that it had worked yeah, well. Plug for Adobe AEM. Exactly. Yeah, or something yeah, how like could that. you not go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Um, the the show's not sponsored by Adobe, I might add. <laughs> um, the, uh, it, it, it could be if we keep talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've had uh, lots of opportunities to monetize it, but we love our audience so much that we we just we don't want to um, distract them from the amazing content yeah. we deliver. Um, <laughs> the some of those unsexy things seem like they, they have the opportunity to make a huge difference in the value of the business. So like I've heard a lot like about things that you wouldn't think about, but like supply chain, right. And you've got all these new demand signals from digital and, and leveraging those, uh, for supply chain. Um, you know, at Unilever, you guys spend a lot of time sort of reinventing the digital shelf. Like is the, is the confectionery digital shelf like where it needs to be, or could you see that continuing to evolve? Um, 
Well, you know, you know, obviously everyone, you know, uses their experiences and what they've learned in previous roles to inform what they're doing in, in new roles if, if the roles are related. And for sure, we took a look at, um, you know, what Unilever had done to drive, you know, the standards around, you know, hero images is which I think you're referring to. And, you know, the interesting thing was is um, – Again, you, you would think it's a silver bullet, but if you don't have the right insights, you might draw the wrong conclusions. And what we found was a version of a hero image does work for confection, clearly. Um, but actually, um, what really drives the engagement and therefore the sale is slightly different. Um, and then the other thing, too, is really, really interesting is if you, if you think about confection and the way confection is packaged – it actually allows for some really, really interesting things uh, in a physical world sense where you can much more accurately um, um, mirror the physical world and the digital world because you're dealing with like, lots of rectangles and lots of squares in your packaging. And so then you can start to unify and harmonize a lot of the creative around pack um, to make sure that it really is a seamless experience. Um, whereas the learning at Unilever was is that you had to figure out what those cues were in the physical sense and then kind of replicate them in a new, different, interesting way so it was recognizable on a digital shelf. Confection's a little bit different. Um, so uh, it allows you, you know, some benefits just from the, the core packaging itself. It's, yeah. re- it's really, really interesting. Hopefully I'm explaining it right, but it's fascinating. To- you're, you're totally ruining our whole yeah. scam in consulting where we just say some, <laughs> something's a best practice and everyone should just do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is a best practice in terms of thinking how you're going to approach um, you know, you should approach it in a way like, how am I going to maximize the, the shelf when people are engaging with my product? If you, can, if you can take it one step further, of course, everybody wants to do that, but it might be different for everybody. Yeah. Um, even to our competitors, it's something else might fire for them because they have slightly different product formats. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about packs, and early on I, yeah. I made a joke about uh, stuff melting and being tough. Yeah. Um, like you, you, you guys uh, have some specific learnings about how to ship these perishables. Can you talk a little bit about how how that came to be and what the solution is? Yeah, well, the the the, the, the basic business problem to solve for was um, Hershey itself. Obviously, uh, is a chocolate company. I mean, we have broader confections. We have you know candy mints and gum, but chocolate is a big big portion of our portfolio, and it melts in the summer. And so we were never going to be able to realize from a digital commerce perspective, at least in some models, um, uh, the sales that we would yield in a physical presence where the temperature is controlled. And so we worked with a number of partners and one partner and specifically to come up with a way where we could ship um, these items. It's very expensive. Um, and it was really only being done within the context of D2C, so really, really low volume um, unit volumes and transactions. Um, and also very high uh, average sale prices for the for the units at retail. So you have the ability to absorb those costs and, and economics. What we had to work towards is, you know, uh, in terms of like, you know, what is the size of the prize overall for our category, um, figure out what that is, and then figure out something that between the months of what depends on what part of the uh, country, but in general between May uh, and the end of September – how can you enable something and make money and make sure that the customer experience and the, or the consumer experience with the individual product would be what we would hope it to be, which is not melted. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we worked with a couple partners, one in particular that uh, has done really, really good work and kind of really fine tuned uh, to the degree where 
Um, they use different types of cooling mechanisms uh, or packs depending on how far the product has to go. Um, so further reducing your costs and um, a couple other nifty tricks. And uh, they just kept refining that. And so we have the ability to, to, to literally uh, deliver hundreds of thousands of packs in an economically efficient way um, during the summer months and, and in a way that the consumers uh, will have a good experience. Nice. And then you guys use that for your direct sales, but you, do you also make it available to your retail partners? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it, they have the same problem. And uh, this is one of those things where you know, we worked with the retailers. They really didn't want to deal with sure. that issue. Um, and But, you know, because it's not a huge portion of their business overall as you, you take a you know basket composition. But it's a big, great big deal for us, right? So we said, hey, we can figure this out for you. We have uh, a model that works uh, economically for your consumer, economically for you, and economically for us. Had to make some choices, and maybe you leave some dollars on the, the table, but, but um, um, necessary to make sure the experience for the consumer is on point. I like it. Um, I noticed that you have a, a URL, shop.hershey.com, where you're, you're yeah, correct. selling direct. Uh, it's always interesting to me to talk to brands about their direct efforts. Is that... Uh, a green eye shade play to grab higher margins and cut the retailer <laughs> out, or is it an opportunity to get some insight from customers? Or what? How do you think about the? So, if if you went, if a consumer was to go to shophershey's.com, the portfolio is radically different from what they're going to see um, in one of our retailers, and uh, there's a reason for that. You know, the we think the people that are going to go there are really Hershey diehards. Um, and what we're attempting to give them is something they couldn't find anywhere else, something that's unique. Um, and we charge, you know, it's, it's, it's a very different, um, threshold there. Average transactions is in the mid sixties and, um, it's not anything that would be a high volume mover at a retail store. And so, um, so the retailers really don't have any interest in it, but they recognize that actually us generating that loyalty and that equity is important both for us, but, but, but obviously to them. Um, and so we don't think there's any conflict, nor do our retailers ever bring it up as a conflict because we've said this is exactly what we're trying to do. So, um, so it's for loyalists. Um, do we make money on it? Yes, we make money on it. Um, but the real reason we do it actually is just to understand better who our loyalists are and what makes them tick. Uh, and then we can use those insights and that data and then apply that to other marketing efforts um, both, um, you know, through our individual marketing and media arms, um, or actually even with the retailers themselves. Yeah. I was going to ask, are there any examples where you've like gathered an insight or, or learned something that you've then been able to use to benefit the retail channel? Um, yeah, I think there's a couple, I think, you know, I think more really maybe we, we broaden up the conversation around broader data. So we've been able to take that data as well as data that we're um, grabbing from our, our websites, our brand.coms. So whether it's Reese's.com or Hershey's.com or Hershey Kitchens, um, take that information. Um, we've built out profiles. We've done, uh, and you know, so we have basically the way you would look at it is you, you've got addressable and known. You know, so you have an email address or phone number, those type of things, and then we've got addressable but unknown, but still have the ability to attach attributes to either one of those, and in some cases even merge some of those together. And then we take that, and um, because we have such good relationships with our retailers, um, we even in some cases have the ability to gather inventory at a store level, and we can marry up our media uh, targeting activities to specific zip codes where we know that those stores are maybe having a hard time getting the inventory off the shelf. 
Um, and then we would lighten up in zip codes where we know the inventory is selling through appropriately. So it's highly efficient for us to, uh, to drive the media that way, and it's also really great for the retail. But that only comes when you have the, 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 the appropriate kind of data and can send a message to people in those zip codes. And that's, inter- yeah. that's amazing because that... Like that's a perfect example of these things that like we're not in the old CPG playbook. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. The, the digital totally enables. Yeah, and the beauty the beauty is too is people are like they always they they always focus on the the consumer one to one data, and they're like consumer one to one, consumer one to one. It's yeah, that's important, but but actually, um, what we're doing is we're actually using um, um, the profiles from our first party data store, some third party data information that our salespeople are gathering and funneling into our supply chain because we use those inventory uh, data points for other use cases within the business. But that's where you're kind of like tying consumer, customer, internal together in a really interesting new way. And this was a use case that was fairly obvious to, to some of the geniuses we have in media. We've got some really sharp people. Um, but until they actually knew some of that data existed because we had figured out the governance to, to marry things up and make things more transparent, it would have never would have happened. So it's, it's a pretty interesting use case all the way around. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about Amazon. Um, yeah. And so I know firsthand that I can get all my favorite Hershey product from Amazon. Yeah. I'm curious where you guys are in the spectrum. There's some people that are like, Amazon's an amazing partner and they give us access to all these customers and sell all this incremental stuff we would otherwise not sell. And there are other people that are like, gosh, they're a race to the bottom and they're they're taking all the margin out of our product and yeah. eventually going to replace us with a private label version. <laughs> um, one could argue that at, at any given point in time over the, re- the history of retail that other companies have actually been cited as driving those types of uh, Outcomes. So, like, there's always been a retailer. There's, there's always one driving that out. Yeah, I can think of one actually in the physical space that sure. people are very worried about, and it's not called Amazon, um, uh, but it does have an A. Yeah, at the beginning of the of their um, their their store. So, at any rate, the uh, the way we look at it is, um, look, people are shopping there, and we have to figure it out. The trick for us is how do we make sure that they may make money and we make money, um, and the consumer for the mission that they're on is getting what they want. So for us, was a lot of insights work, figuring out what people were really going to Amazon for, um, doing some work and having honest conversations, both internally ourselves, but also with Amazon around why we might not want to have our entire assortment online, because um, I think that's a fallback position. Oh, a long tail, and but economically didn't make any sense. Um, so you know, once you do those things and you you prove that those things are working. Um, and you bring some insights to, and this would be true of any retailer, quite frankly, whether it's Walmart, Target, or you know, uh, in dollar or convenience. Um, if you have a, a crisp insight around the behavior um, of the guest that is interacting with that retailer, um, and you prove it out and it works, then it opens up the conversations to do more. And so, um, while you know, a lot of times people would say this is a really difficult uh, customer to deal with, I would say. You know, there's a lot of customers that are that are difficult to deal with, you know, but, you know, they're trying to make their model work and you're trying to make your model work. So you have to figure out a way that makes it work for, for both people. And what I found is that if you can prove success on Amazon in new and novel ways, you get the same kind of, op- I wouldn't, you know, it's a different type of openness, maybe, but that's different for every retailer anyway, but you're going to get some openness to do a few different things. And so we have had the ability to influence um, how they're bringing in product 
um, and, and, you know, giving them good data to back, back up, you know, that they're leaving money on the table. And we've also been able to be sharp around what's the portfolio we want to have on that retailer that doesn't lead to the type of disruption um, in the marketplace around pricing or whatever it might be. And so it's a balancing act. It's, it's, you're always going to be working on it in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I think there are ways around it. It just takes a lot of thinking and a lot of execution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It it's funny because you know there's a lot of medicines that are good for us but don't taste very good. Yeah. Um. And in in some ways, I think of uh, Amazon as being a little bit of that effect that like uh, you guys enjoy a ton of benefits from being the ultimate incumbent and owning the shelf space in brick and mortar retail. Yeah. And so you've got this like for great moat around your legacy business that that uh, you know frankly is mostly thanks to your predecessors. <laughs> um, on Amazon, that moat is a lot shallower. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, in some ways, it, it forces uh, better execution and, and uh, better development of new school skills. It makes it easier for those incumbents to, or those, those sort of challenger brands to, to sort of um, eat in your business. And, and to survive, you have to like, learn new skills and b- build a new playbook, which is... Yeah, totally right. And I think, you know, um, the way the category, um, at least in that ship to home model, you know, the core Amazon.com model now, not, not fresh, not prime sure. now or anything, you know, is, um, you know, it looks really different from the physical world anyway, right? So the dynamics are a bit different. So ensuring that you understand that your dynamics are going to be a little bit different is, is really key because you have to set the appropriate expectations with your leadership and with your shareholders as to what you're going to get out of, um, out of that retailer if they're concerned about it. I would say, though, that the, the moats were shallower five years ago than they are now. Interesting. So the, um, you know, there's a lot of press right now around how Amazon has been changing their algorithms to favor profitability. Yeah. So that means that to the degree that you can uh, serve them with a portfolio, it makes sense for the mission and the consumer, uh, makes money for them and you, um, that's a good thing. And, um, and then the, because, you know, if you think about the algorithm, the, if you've got the profitability thing kind of like mapped out appropriately, then uh, you should be in a good place. You shouldn't worry about that too much. The other thing is, is frankly, they have paid search. And so paid search in my mind is, is you know, it's, it's like taking up, you know, an end cap or, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a different manifestation. But actually the smaller challenger brands, you know, they don't have the scale uh, or the ability to invest, or maybe even the insights to actually do some of that work. So I actually think that while five, six, seven years ago the mo- the moat would have been shallow, I actually yeah. think it's deepening yeah. to a certain degree, I and that totally actually that. is is actually good for us. Now there is always the the, the specter of say a private label, yeah, um, but that's true anywhere. Sure, yeah. So, um, so in, uh, an interesting point about the the paid media opportunities. Uh, obviously, it's it's become epic, economically meaningful at Amazon. They're like the third largest advertising platform now. Yeah. It's over $10 billion or whatever. Distant third, but still. Third. Yeah, yeah. And way better margin than their actual retail business. Um, yeah. The, like, it's also becoming more important to every other retailer that's like heavily, yeah, heavily sure. economically challenged. So we're like right now seeing every retailer double down on building their own media offers and new teams and. Correct like replacing vendors with in-house teams and all these things. Um, manufacturers funding uh, retailers' marketing initiatives is not a new idea. It's been around for 100 years. Like, you know, there have been all these co-op models and merchandising yeah. accrual models. It's part of business. Yeah, but yeah. historically, I would, ar- I would almost argue it was uh, 
sort of a quid pro quo. Like uh, you buy a million dollars of uh, my stuff and you get one and a half percentage of that to invest in marketing. And so yeah. if you want to put it in a store circular, fine. If you want to put it in an cap, that's fine too. Um, these new media opportunities, what's interesting to me about them is it feels more like brands like you are investing those dollars based on a, um, an ROI model rather than it being a, a cost of doing business or a functionary part of that account management. Am I, is that true or am I, am I being uh, overly optimistic? No, it would be true. I think, you know, the... You know, you have to do a lot of work. As you're starting to engage with the retailers who are doing that, you have to do a lot of work up front in terms of the puts and takes. And uh, the messaging that we've really been focused on, and, and Charlie Chappell, who's our, our head of media, mentioned yesterday, um, or has mentioned in other conversations, is if, if you're going to become a real media player, that means you're competing with the big media players. And so... Um, you have to be able to prove that ROI. You have to be, to a certain degree, more open with your data. Um, because what you're saying is if you want to access that pot of money, um, then you need to be able to compete. Because what we're going to do is, you know, because there are scenarios where you can think, you're like, I'm going to heavily invest in this new media platform, but it's not going to yield what some, one of these other platforms is going to yield broadly across the entire marketplace. That would affect that said retailer in a retail sense. So while they might be getting more dollars in media, if it's not, if, if we're actually spending in the wrong place and we're not able to drive the appropriate amount of traffic into said retailer because they're not efficient and effective, um, then both of us lose. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the conversations are, are around, like, how do we make sure that we're taking all of those things into consideration uh, and ensuring that you know everybody wins as opposed to everybody loses. The other thing that we think about a lot is that yeah, everybody's thinking about becoming a media partner, but there's there's certain retailers that are never going to be able to do that. They don't have any reach. Um, you know, they might be regional players, and so I think their point of differentiation uh, becomes even more um, uh, important. And I think there's a couple retailers out there. They are making, you know, they're, they're like, look, we're not going to be able to play that game. We're going to differentiate in other ways. And I think that's how they could possibly win, might, most likely will. Um, but not everybody can become a media player. And they have to, if they're going to become one, they need to understand they're going to be competing with, you know, some real heavyweights. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I think you're exactly right. Like every decision any of these companies make, like, is a decision to move towards one choice and away from another. And yeah. so that other creates a white space for someone else. Yeah. And so it's a, like even as Amazon's monetizing search and they're selling those like top search results. Like I, I was somewhere, I might've been here yesterday. Walmart was talking about like, yeah, we're monetizing our site, but we will never sell our top search results because we think that's a customer experience thing. Yeah. And so it just, it just creates opportunities. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how it evolved because I, you know, my understanding, and this is, again, this is, you know, from the press and just reading over the past couple of days is there was a, a lot of internal debate at Amazon around, do we want to put this attribute into our algorithm and use that to drive some of the search results because they were so focused on the consumer experience? And my guess is, you know, maybe it'll stick, maybe it won't. Um, they're very smart. They're going to test it out, and if they get flack in some way, shape, or form, they're very quick yeah. to adjust. Um, but it is fascinating um, to, watch it, to, to watch it happen. The other thing that I think is fascinating is, um, you know, the media companies that are threatened by the retail companies in some way, shape, or form and how they're reacting and now who they partner with to make sure that they're getting a, their fair share of, you know, in some cases, what is a major revenue stream for them. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Like yeah. that, you know, the retailers are trying to become media companies, and the media companies are trying to figure out how to do commerce. How to do? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, it's it's funny. All the old all the old swim lanes are breaking down. Yeah, breaking down. Yeah, everyone's jumping in everyone else's business. Uh, so I mentioned at the outset that we're at grocery shop today, and yes. uh, you just finished a panel um, that was entitled "Connecting Customer Data Points." And first of all, I heard the moderator for that panel was amazing. He was incredible. Yeah, I don't know who that guy was, but uh, yeah. they they should get more. They should of that get. A, guy. They should get a, give him another go. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or at least take him off of probation. Um, can you tell uh, listeners a little bit about like what you talked about in that panel? What was? Yeah, I think we hit a lot of it here in the podcast. The um, um, you know the focus was on you know you know connecting customers and c- consumers yeah. in this case uh, via data. And so um, we had um, Scott from Wakefern who talked about it more from a retail perspective. And I think he really focused in on the individual consumers and how that relates to um, uh, Wakefern as a retailer. Yeah, my focus was a little bit different is, you know, we're, we're very focused on the consumer as well. Um, but from a broader data perspective, we're of the belief that um, being able to connect our um, both our internal data and our external data actually yields um, some goodness um, within in terms of the consumer experience that you can't get if they're they're disconnected in some way, shape, or form. And and uh, I was a little bit remiss actually in the conversation to to bring up, you know, how does that impact uh, consumer engagement if you're talking about internal um, information? And I guess one of the one of the ways to kind of think about it is uh, we uh, we create a huge amount of um, content. All that content ends up being digitized in some way, shape, or form if it isn't digital from, from you know, birth. And we have to categorize that, organize that, and pump that out into individual channels, whether they're retail channels or whether they're media channels and other marketing channels, to get to the right consumer. So you, the, the right creative, the right call to action to that right consumer. Um, and that's very difficult to do in a, in a world that's going towards, you know, more contextualization and personalization. So ultimately, that will have to be automated in some way, shape, or form. Getting your data in a good place allows us to actually run algorithms over that, and they will categorize and organize that, and eventually they will just spit out the right messages to the right people at the right time. Um, that's just a few years away. You know, the technology really exists, but it's, it's how do you get your data foundations in place to enable that is actually more a job one. So while people talk about the, oh, the customer, the consumer experience and personalization and whatnot, um, what they sometimes ignore is that if you need to systematize that, um, in a way that's scalable, so you can still have the efficiency of a mass media, but just do it in a new and different way, then you're going to have to do this data foundation first. And that's what I was kind of pushing at in the conversation sure. around we're stringing things together in a way where it's not isolated. And I think the, the, the example that I gave you earlier around using data that was um, um, being originally connected uh, or um, taken in and ingested into the organization to drive supply chain decisions is now being used to, to, to do supply chain decisions, but also to engage with consumers directly um, through customers. And uh, I find that fascinating. So that's that's what we were no, I, trying to push on. I like it. And I think you're exactly right. Like, you know, I work for a big ad agency. And so there's a ton of, a, of effort in, the, in that agency around dynamic content, which you were talking about. Yeah. And that's, it's exciting and people want to work on it. But per your point, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have the yeah. data governance right... The content will be dynamic, but it won't be relevant to the right person, and it yeah. won't yeah. won't get there's, the results you bit, want. There's a bit, of, there's a little bit of a risk too in terms of you know when you're thinking through overall data strategy that um, you need more, um, you need more or you need new, 
And um, I think those things are super important. I think they need to be thought about um, as part of your overall digital or digital and data strategy. But more specifically, you need to understand what you already have and figure out if you're even uh, exploiting that to the degree that you can. And that might be more important and give you more kind of oomph than the sexy new data. It goes back to the shiny things. Sure. And that's a great segue to uh, one of the takeaways I thought was really useful uh, from your panel. You kind of talked about these three tracks in in, uh, data, and um, I'll I'll let you explain it, but... uh, like, you know, when clients are asking for the, like, highest ROI initiatives, like, it's it's almost never to get more data. It's usually to get a smart person yeah. to do something better with the data you already have. Yeah, that's right. So the, the way we think about it is, is basically three tracks. And, you know, it's, it's a... It's a version of people, process, and tools, you know. But um, the way we think about it is data, technology, culture, um, process would be within the culture bucket. And uh, around data, what we think about is, you know, what is the data that we actually need? It goes back to what we just discussed a few minutes ago. What do you really need? And, and, and what do you need to keep? And what do you need um, to uh, bring in, use, and then just dispose? Um, that's actually a thing to think about that most people don't. The sec- second thing there is uh, the health, the garbage in, garbage out, making sure that uh, the, the health is there and that when, as you're harmonizing and merging data sets that they're in good shape. And then the last piece is, well, how do you make that even accessible to the organization? Because sometimes uh, if you've siloed it, it's difficult to find out. You might even have the data, but you might not know it's there, and if, or you might not know where to go to get it. Um, and so solving for that is really, really foundationally important. Only then can you build your technology platforms on top of that. And uh, I'm a fan of simplifying that, making it much more modular, less point solutions, um, and uh, letting the marketplace dictate the innovations and being a little bit less... Um, um, a spoke, yep. and then uh, around that, you know, there's the you know the buzzwords around optimization and automation. That they are buzzwords, but they are also true. So have the you know be choiceful in the tools that you're going to bring on, the platforms you're going to bring on, and why you're going to use them. Um, obviously, make sure that they can plug into the data. But then, as you're using them, making sure that you're optimizing them before you're bringing on new feature sets and whatnot. And then uh, to the degree that you can, you know, eliminate repetitive processes and not that's kind of your first step in automation as opposed to going for the big shiny thing um, that's going to be really difficult to solve for. And then the final piece is culture, which I think you don't have to really even think about that is how do you make sure people are actually thinking digital and data first and um, thinking about how are they going to adopt the tools that you've put in place for them as opposed to going back to their spreadsheets and everybody does it a slightly different way. Um, and then think about the types of people that you either need to train for, you know, the kind of the new roles that you're going to have to train for with the, with the workforce that you have. And then think about how you um, uh, recruit and bring in new, new thinking and new talent, um, you know, digitally native talent, if you want to call it that, or data native talent. Um, so that's the way we think about it. Three tracks around the data, the technology, and then the culture. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, one-year goals around those, three-year goals around those, and five-year goals around those. I, I love it. Um, we are coming up on time. I want to squeeze one more question if I can. Sure. Um, uh, if you put your crystal ball uh, on, which is, I think I'm mixing metaphors. Like, I think you wouldn't. I'm a fan of that. You wouldn't wear a crystal ball. Um, but if you get out your crystal ball, uh, do you have any sort of POV about how all this is going to continue to evolve over the next several years? So first, if you were to wear a crystal ball, you'd be Mysterio. Yeah. That's true. All right. We can agree on that. Yes. Okay. The um, I don't know. 
to be frank. <laughs> so the, um, you know, it's funny, right after the panel, you know, I had um, uh, an analyst from Piper Jaffray asking me questions like, you know, where do you think it's going? And I'm like, I, I really don't know. Um, what we do know, though, is you will have a continued convergence, uh, um, or I would say metamorphosis or transformation of retailers into the media partners. I think that is happening already. Um, and so um, the, the thing to watch will be how do the incumbent media players react? So that, I think that's going to be a really interesting space. I don't know exactly how they will, um, uh, but I think that would be interesting. The other thing, at least in the U.S. market, is clear is that the, uh, the retailers are now playing for keeps in the groceries space, right? So in the last two years, you, you saw massive increases in click-and-collect operations, both at Walmart and Kroger, um, the target making moves was shipped, uh, kind of the rise of Instacart um, as a, you know, kind of a third party solution for the retailers that maybe can't afford or don't want to go into those, those areas themselves, um, differentiating in different ways and leaving that to a third party. So I think, um, I think the, I think the, the cards are out on the table now. Now it's a matter of how does everybody make money from that scenario? You know, because uh, it, it is dilutive, at least in, its, in the near term, and uh, it's going to cause everybody to rethink how do they address things in a way where um, consumers are happy because they're getting what they want, uh, the customers are making money, and the manufacturers are making money. I think um, that's going to be a really fun space to, to watch. For sure. I, I couldn't agree more, and that's going to be a great place to leave it because we've used up all our allotted time. Fantastic. Um, Doug, if uh, listeners want to contact you, are you somewhere on the interweb? Are you? Uh... Uh, yes, I keep a minimal footprint on LinkedIn. Cool. Yeah, I, so we will we'll put your LinkedIn profile. You'll find profile. me nowhere else but LinkedIn. I, I like it. Way to aggregate all your juice. <laughs> That's uh, right. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and as always, if listeners want to continue the conversation, they're welcome to uh, hit us up on Twitter or uh, uh, post a question on our Facebook page. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this show, the best way to, to thank us is to jump on iTunes and finally give us that five-star review we've been desperately begging for. <laughs> um, Doug, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank yeah, you very much. My pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Yeah. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 